You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmeswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. Uh, so last episode, when we left off, uh, we both were looking forward to revisiting the ongoing, the then ongoing tour by U.S. Vice President Mike Pence of Asia. Uh, for listeners, if you wanted to hear a bit about Pence's trip to Asia, especially the first component of that trip, uh, listen to the previous podcast where we discussed the East Asia Summit and uh, Singapore's chairmanship of ASEAN. But uh, Pence's trip was going to always end with his uh, visit to the um, APEC Summit in 2018, which is being hosted by Papua New Guinea, that country's first time hosting the 21 countries that comprise the grouping. It's a consultative group. APEC is usually not known for being particularly exciting, although it does provide an opportunity for interesting sideline meetings. This year, however, APEC turned out to be a little bit more exciting than anybody had anticipated, although the outcome might not have been so unthinkable. So what was so interesting about APEC this year? So at the end of the meeting, um, after every APEC meeting, the countries get together and issue a fairly anodyne joint communique. The group's purpose is to facilitate regional exchange on uh, economic issues generally towards facilitating free trade. Obviously, that mission has come under stress with the United States. This is a recalibration under the Trump administration towards a more protectionist policy. So Pence did bring that with him. Um, but it turned out that in the end, um, it was actually China that, according to reports, uh, especially in the Wall Street Journal citing uh, senior U.S. officials and others uh, with knowledge of the negotiations behind this communique, um, apparently China couldn't agree to a specific sentence in the communique that essentially emphasized that all unfair trade practices would be um, worked against by the uh, APEC grouping. So it's it, it's fairly anodyne. The precise line was, we agreed to fight protectionism, including all unfair trade practices. So I kind of saw that as telling of Chinese sensitivities and insecurities about this issue at this point. Um, we've seen this from Xi Jinping, who's been casting himself as the defender of globalization. He did it at Davos earlier this year. He did it at the Boao Forum for Asia when he first began acknowledging that his Belt and Road Initiative, his signature foreign policy initiative, didn't have any kind of ulterior motives, a theme that he revisited at APEC, especially when Pence directly pushed him on this issue, um, You know, saying that the United States doesn't drown our partners in a sea of debt. We don't coerce or compromise your independence. The United States deals openly, fairly. We do not offer a constricting belt or a one-way road. When you partner with us, we partner with you and we all prosper. So that's, that's really not very subtle. It's a, it's a clear swipe at China's Belt and Road Initiative and Chinese trade practices. Um, so yeah, the APEC summit ended without a, a communique, sort of embarrassing uh, the Papua New Guineans who were looking forward to kind of hosting this banner international event for the first time. It was a major moment for their coming out on the international stage. Um, but Prashant, so now that I've kind of laid out, you know, the, the what exactly happened, um, I'd love your perspective on, I think, you know, what this tells us about the current state of China's relationship with the broader region. Um, and, you know, we can talk a bit more about the China-U.S. relationship, um, but, you know, I think that's maybe a good place to start here. Yeah, the place that uh, I think we, we, we should start with is this... Uh notion that the Chinese uh, behavior at APEC this year um, really has come out in terms of, you know, whether you're looking at uh, U.S. media reports or international media more generally um, as being quite negatively portrayed. Um, you, you saw, I think, Josh Rogan at, at the Washington Post 
coined sort of this term Chinese uh, tantrum diplomacy, where you know he cataloged a, a series of actions that the Chinese are purportedly taken, um, from bulldozing into meetings at the last minute to uh, not adhering to and stonewalling at, at the last minute to make sure that there was no joint communique reach. It really is an interesting pattern because, as you noted correctly, since the Trump administration has come into office, we have seen President Trump himself at some of these other meetings, whether it's G7 or NATO, really you know, either crash the party or try to undermine some consensus at the last minute. But the Chinese have really come out um, of APEC as, as looking as the irresponsible or, or unreasonable party. Now, obviously, you may, we'll have to dig deeper to see the extent to which uh, that's true. But all the evidence that we have so far suggests that that's the case. The reason why that's troubling is um, this is not the case where we've seen in previous multilateral institutions and summitry, for example, with respect to ASEAN and the South China Sea, we've talked about in this podcast, right, this idea that, that there was no communique issued or there's wording on the South China Sea. And you can understand why that's a very sensitive uh, area of dispute. But, you know, first of all, this is APEC, uh, where the statements that are issued are pretty anodyne, as, as you noted, right, on small medium enterprises or, or trade diplomacy and things of the like. So this is not a forum where you would peg for big disagreements to happen with respect to a joint communique, but nonetheless, it did happen. And then the second issue is uh, the specific wording of it doesn't mention China specifically. It, it talks about unfair trade practices and protectionism across the board. So it really is a case where, unless there's something that we're missing here, the wording doesn't seem particularly to target China. So this notion that China is being overly sensitive um, to this issue and really hitting out um, at some of these institutions really does seem to carry some weight given the weight of the evidence we've seen so far. Yeah, I mean, it, it really smacks of uh, insecurities and, and a little bit of guilty conscience I get. You know, I mean, I think I think what's been kind of uncomfortable for China with this uh, trade war with the United States playing out is that um, one of the consequences of the trade war, you know, leaving aside the medicine that the United States has prescribed, which has largely been tariffs, has been that the U.S. is more openly than ever describing and talking about Chinese trade practices, which has kind of revealed it to, um, you know, the rest of the world and made it a topic for fair discussion at forums like APEC. Um, so, you know, I mean, just before we recorded this podcast earlier today, uh, this is um, Wednesday, November 21st, the U.S. Trade Representative just released a, um, a follow-up to the Section 301 um, um, investigation into Chinese intellectual property practices. Um, and we've seen sort of previous national trade estimates sort of outline in great detail Chinese trade practices. So I think, um, you know, we kind of see the Trump administration ramp up its public criticism of Chinese uh, economic and trade practices, including the Belt and Road. And at the same time, we see, you know, Xi Jinping, the president of China, who doesn't really take too much time to kind of travel to these kinds of international forums previously. I mean, Xi's diplomatic schedule is is pretty it's pretty tightly curated. It used to be kind of um, you know Li Keqiang who'd go to some of these uh, international meetings and forums, but now it's been Xi himself kind of taking up the mantle and trying to defend China, um, saying that you know we don't have any specific um, designs to uh, you know overtake countries. Um, you know at APEC he said that. The Belgian Road Initiative was not designed to serve any hidden political agendas, which echoed language that we first saw, I believe. Um, I might be wrong on when we first saw it, but um, definitely it stood out to me at the at the Boa Forum, which uh, China hosted earlier this year. So I think it's an, inter it's an interesting effect of the trade war uh, that's been playing out, which is that uh, China now has, you know, feels a need to defend itself. I think it's doing a clumsy job. Um, as you said, I mean, the way that Beijing behaved at APEC, 
um, does, I think, you know, belie a serious degree of uncertainty. I do want to note that, you know, I do want to note that we don't necessarily know for sure what happened mm-hmm. at the negotiations because these kinds of things, I think, are going to come out. Um, actually, so uh, a reporter at um, ABC, the Australian ABC, um, said that, you know, he had a different account of what happened at the APEC uh, communique negotiations, which was that um, it was actually more of a bilateral tussle between the United States and China as the communique was coming together and not necessarily Chinese opposition. Um, so it is possible, you know, we didn't get the draft sentence in its full form. Uh, potentially there might have been, you know, the U.S. might have been pushing for some other kind of specific reference there that the Chinese might have taken umbrage with. Um, but whatever it is, I think we're, we're sort of starting to see the um, the great power frictions here sort of spill over into these um, into these groupings. I mean, APEC is really, like you said, never supposed to be the forum for this kind of a showdown, right? I mean, this isn't mm-hmm. ASEAN uh, in Cambodia in 2013 failing to issue a communique over the South China Sea disputes. This is a very different kind of circumstances. But I think that's really where the uh, the trade dispute has uh, gotten to. Yeah. Uh, so. To you know, to follow up kind of thematically, um, I think I think it makes sense a bit to talk about uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping's um, regional tour of, of Southeast Asia, uh, because it wasn't just Papua New Guinea that he uh, visited for the um, APEC meeting, but he also um, followed that up with a trip to the Philippines um, and to Brunei. And Prashant, you're our resident Southeast Asia watchers. So, what went down at these two meetings? I think the way that it was framed in in the media was, I mean, the fact that these are two of the four Southeast Asian claimants in the South China Sea, that she was essentially uh, sort of making sure that he was doling out some economic concessions in exchange for the fact that the Chinese have really gained on the South China Sea and the Philippines and Brunei have both been relatively quiet, particularly the Bruneians who've always been like that, uh, even before uh, the last few years. But the Philippines, with the rise of President Rodrigo Duterte, has definitely taken a different approach. So that was the the framing. If you look at the actual visits, though, themselves, in, in the Philippines, there was this agreement on uh, joint exploration, but it was actually the fact that the agreement and the framework agreement that was initially proposed by the Chinese had not actually been agreed with, and it was actually just an agreement to set up uh, a mode of discussion to actually talk about uh, potential exploration. So that wasn't really that significant, and you saw a raft of deals. But again, uh, when President Duterte first went to uh, China after coming to office, a lot of the deals that were initially signed and concluded, we still haven't seen uh, the actual benefits from that. So you're seeing a, a lot of the similar things that you see when uh, Xi Jinping goes on these visits um, and Chinese leadership in general, where you see a lot of these deals and MOUs and framework agreements concluded. But the key question is where those actually are going to go. Similar dynamic in Brunei, where you know a very heavy economic emphasis. And actually, um, for all the talk about the South China Sea, um, the energy agreements that were concluded were were largely similar to the ones that were concluded a few years ago, and they haven't actually made significant inroads since then. And the Bruneians have been ramping up, at, you know, as we've talked about before, their diplomacy with Japan, with the United States, because they're quite cognizant themselves about the increasing inroads that the Chinese are making in the South China Sea. So. In spite of the hype, I think, um, on, on the focus on the South China Sea and economic leverage that China is bringing to bear on those two countries, I don't quite see it as being that alarmist and sensationalist of a story. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, with Brunei, I mean, it, it seems like the big story with Brunei-China relations has been the expansion of trade. Mm -hmm. um, just bilateral trade is really where that relationship is going. Um, and yeah, the South China Sea, I mean, Brunei has sort of always kept its head down on the issue, even though it is a claimant. Um, so we didn't really see any new developments there. Um, I think I think what you said about the the Philippines, um, the uh, exploration agreement to agree to future agreements or agree to be open to future agreements. I think that's an important observation because I think when that news initially broke, I think a lot of people sort of flipped out and thought that there was some kind of um, yeah. joint exploration arrangement. But it's a it's a much more modest um, a recalibration of that. Um, but you know, I mean, while we're on this topic, I mean, you know, I remember. I guess it was, it was over two years ago when we did our first podcast about Duterte and we talked about sort of his perspective towards China and his sort of um, public opinion. So maybe it's a good time to, you know, retake stock of that. Um, obviously, the recalibration that Duterte has undertaken with, the Phil um, with China has been tricky domestically in the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines right. is an overwhelmingly pro-American country. Duterte himself is not. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, um, as someone that's been following the Philippines closely, um, where do you think things have really come there um, with regard to the relationship with China? It, it's been really a, a litmus test, I think, of um, when you have a leader that's uh, swimming against the current in terms of public opinion, as you noted, in terms of the military, in terms of where the Philippines has been, which is a treaty ally of the United States and very strong cultural, people-to-people, -people, economic ties to the United States. Uh, how far can he go? Uh, and I think if you were to do an honest assessment so far, given where Duterte started and where he is now, uh, the answer is not very far. Um, the Duterte has given a lot up in terms of not pursuing the ruling uh, as aggressively, the South China Sea ruling that the Philippines pursued. Um, he's given up a lot in terms of his public statements with respect to the United States and tr concluding some security agreements with, with China that the Chinese have wanted, but the Philippines hasn't gotten a significant amount in return for that so far. Obviously, it, it remains to be seen whether this will actually be realized in the latter part of his term, but the case is in the Philippines, a lot of the, since it's a single six-year term by a Philippine president, a lot of the opposition against the president and a lot of the, the, the sort of backlog on his domestic agenda starts building up after his second year as you get into his halfway mark. So you have to say, I mean, it, it's quite disappointing what Duterte has done and the, the, the rewards he's reaped so far with respect to Sino-Philippine relations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to China's engagement with the region, I guess, uh, you know, where do things go from here? Um, I think I think after this, you know, APEC summit, I mean, the timing of this is also very interesting, right? So in December, the uh, Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership is going to enter into force, uh, which I think, you know, if you if you told me that last year after the Trump administration withdrew from the TPP, I'd have been a little skeptical, but it's really been <laughs> remarkable to see the uh, 11 countries to that agreement sort of push ahead. On the other side, RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, has sort of foundered um, due to a variety of issues. So, you know, we're going to see CPTPP take effect. China is still coming under siege. I mean, all the signals, you know, we do have this G20 meeting coming up in Argentina where Trump and Xi, depending on who you ask, are supposed to potentially reach some kind of a truce. But everything else I'm seeing, you know, out of uh, the U.S. Trade Representative's office, um, comments by folks like Wilbur Ross, um, obviously you do have the trade hawks who continue to want to put further pressure on China suggests to me that this trade war isn't going anywhere. Um, so I'm wondering, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, to also add on here, China is also starting to see this year, especially the 
dark side of sort of Belt and Road Initiative projects colliding with regional democracies, right? So we've talked about Mahathir, we've talked about Imran Khan, now the Maldives, where uh, Ibu Soli was just inaugurated and has said that he will roll back the uh, the free trade agreement that was rammed through the parliament there last December. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of countries are starting to sort of push back on China. The United States is making it in a way easier for them to do so by loudly proclaiming all of its own grievances with China, even though the only real prescription the U.S. has come up with so far is tariffs. Um, so at one point, do we start to see a, a Chinese counter strategy to this? I think that's that's the question to watch for, for 2019, to be honest. I mean, uh, I think there we've seen kind of conflicting narratives develop over the course of the past year, right, where the Trump administration has tried to clearly portray China as being the unreasonable and irresponsible party and, and say the United States is embarking on this very competitive strategy towards China, things are changing. But at the same time, I, my sense is, you know, traveling through the region, there, there still is some skepticism in these regional capitals about, you know, what is Washington willing to offer? And is the U.S. variable that certain with the Trump administration? It brings with it its own, uh, you know, measures that have, the United States has shot itself in the foot with withdrawing from TPP, for example. There's these uh, issues with respect to protectionism and, and sort of the America first foreign policy. So I think countries will be looking to see, first of all, after the midterms, what will the Trump administration do with respect to personnel changes, um, with respect to some of its foreign policy measures going forward in 2019? And will we see more certainty on the U.S. variable? I think the China variable, we, we've seen a lot of certainty already with respect to the China's, Chinese approach, which is, you know, there, there are multi-tracks, right? The Chinese will in, engage with the United States and compete on those terms. It will, you know, to the extent that regional symmetry and institutions matter, they will do that, but they'll be very selective in terms of their consensus. And the the main uh, inroads they're trying to make is bilaterally between various countries. That's the key, whether that will actually change going forward in 2019. So there's, there's this element of pushback in the region with respect to China, but there's also uncertainty, I feel, with respect to the United States. And I think the extent to which we'll we'll actually see more certainty from Washington in 2019 will remain to be seen. All right. I think that's a good uh, forward-looking note. Um, I think as December comes on, we'll probably do a lot more of these podcasts looking ahead to the year to come. Um, well, Prashant, um, it's always fun doing this with you. So thanks a lot for joining me. Good to be with you. For our listeners, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, but you uh, haven't subscribed, please do so. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't left us a rating on either iTunes or Google Play, uh, please go ahead and do that. We really uh, do appreciate that. Helps get the word out about the show. Um, And if you're interested in some of the things we talked about on this podcast, uh, you might also be interested in the new newsletter that we've launched at The Diplomat um, on Asia-Pacific political risk. Uh, You can subscribe and read that newsletter at diplomat.substack.com. And if you have any feedback on either that or the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me anytime. I'm available on Twitter or via email at ankit at the So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.